Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 9th, 2014. This is episode 1384 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today. I've got uh, Tim O'Brien. That's not actually his real name. He's a law enforcement officer from North Carolina, and we're going to have a very frank, open, and honest discussion about law enforcement and interaction between civilians and law enforcement, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the indifferent, and some of the things that law enforcement officers have done that is wrong and improper, in some cases downright criminal, and in some cases how the public with misguided activism is actually doing a hell of a lot more harm than good, how to have... Uh, the best impo possible encounter with law enforcement without giving up your rights when you are uh, in such a situation, and many other things. Today's show goes over two hours. That's because the interview is close to two hours alone. I didn't even realize that until I was like an hour and 40 in. I looked at the timer and I was like, holy crap, because it was such a great conversation. And it was refreshing to have an honest conversation with someone that said, hey, look, I got a job to do. This is how I do my job. This is what I'm paid to do. These are the things I'm supposed to do. And these are some of the things that maybe you don't like, but this is what I am. This is what my job is what I'm supposed to do. But then at the same time would say, and this is wrong and this is wrong and cops that do this don't need to be in the, on the street. Um, it was great. So I'll have Tim on in just a moment. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Jeff is an awesome guy, folks, man. He really, really is. Jeff is the most amazing customer service machine I have ever seen in my life. Uh, he really, really takes care of you. And what are you going to get from the Berkey guy? Well, Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. One of the top dealers in the world for Berkey. That means he can get great pricing and pass it along to you, along with that stellar customer service, and has a lot of other great things for your prepping needs. You'll find all of them at Directive21.com. The website is Directive21.com, and the number is 21, not spelled out 21. So Directive21.com. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. If you don't have silver and gold in your portfolio, you should. Um, silver and gold are great hedges against inflation. And, you know, have you gotten your shipwreck silver yet? There's uh, silver now available from the USS Gersboa um, that laid on the ocean floor from World War II uh, period up until just a few years ago. It was recovered uh, by the Odyssey out of Florida and uh, has now been actually minted into bars and rounds and uh, to commemorate the ship with uh, the ship on the, uh, the bars and the rounds. Uh, they're really cool. It's really a piece of history. I picked up a dozen ounces. That's something you may want to add to your silver collection. But for all your needs, Jam Bullion has better pricing than Monix and Atmex on 90% of their offerings. And if there's ever a hiccup or an issue, let me know, and I can talk directly to the president of the company for you. Uh, I spoke to Monix and Atmex when I decided to bring on a silver and gold sponsor and decided that I didn't want them because, well, they handed me off to some second-round uh, clown in marketing. Uh, versus someone that actually had authority in the company. When I talked to JM, I was able to talk directly to Michael, the president of the company, 
that's the kind of service I need to know that I can recommend somebody for something like this to you guys. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Uh, next up, do you consider joining the Member Support Brigade? Hey, you'll get discounts to J.M. Bullion, the Berkey guy, and a lot of other great discounts if you join the MSB. You'll help support the show at 18.3 cents per episode. So when you get done with the show, if you think it's worth two dimes an episode, consider joining. And uh, you'll also get some content available nowhere else. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members for more information. Uh, remember, I do take not only payments online with PayPal. I also take Bitcoin. I take silver. Uh, I take cash, I take checks, check money order, however you want to pay. There's on the members page, you scroll to the bottom, you'll see all the options. And uh, really love to have you part of the member support brigade if you're not already part of the MSB. Uh, with that, let's go to the year of 1384, because it's the episode 1384. So we are back again, way back in history, 1384. We're at a time period where the Black Death keeps popping back up in little pockets, but the big giant wave of it has passed through, decimated the population. The population of the planet is still in decline, specifically in Europe and Asia. And uh, we have a troublemaker by the name of uh, John Wycliffe, who is an early reformer in the church and paves the way for the Protestant Reformation. And this jerk has the freaking gall to die. Yeah, let me read you uh, Alex Shrug's piece on this at tspwiki.com. Perp Obit, Perp, Pope, Perp, Perp. We should call them the Perps, right? At this time, anyway. Pope Urban VI is an enthusiastic reformer of the church, but his efforts are superficial or his efforts are rendered superficial by church bureaucracy. But either way, it is clear the reform movement from within is failing. John Wycliffe had been an early supporter of Pope Urban, but after the Peasants' Revolt, One of Wycliffe's followers was implicated. Pope Urban issued a number of opinions, none of them favorable to Wycliffe, and summoned Wycliffe to Rome, which is convenient since he got thrown out of, you know, England. Wycliffe has continued his fiery call for reform and writes a response to the Pope, but after Christmas, in the midst of reforming Mass, he has a massive stroke and passes away before the year is out. Several reform movements, including the Lollard movement, will lumber on for several years and die out, but the way has been paved for the Protestant Reformation years and years from now. Before I give you Alex Shrug's take, I want to kind of tell you something that um, I think a lot of people don't realize. How important the Protestant Reformation was in the shaping of history is is massive. We won't go deep into it because we'll get there in several hundred years. Um, but I... I remember studying this when I was in Catholic school. Yes, Jack Spierko went to Catholic school, at least until I managed to get myself thrown out uh, for asking too many questions and being too annoying. Um, but I think we probably dug deeper into the Protestant Reformation in Catholic school than most people do in general world history. And while I'm a big believer of the separation of church and state, I don't think you can really comprehend the lens of history and ignore religion, because religion has played such a big part in it. And literally tearing apart one of the key powers in the world at the time was what the Protestant Reformation is, and we're beginning to see that rip and tear right now. Here's Alex Shrug's take. Just as John Wycliffe was getting really wound up, the most influential man of the age simply drops dead. Jerk. 
kind of like do that for? This creates a vacuum in leadership, but more importantly, it takes away the main target of the church establishment and aristocracy. What they needed was Wycliffe alive and properly punished for his transgressions. Politically speaking, they really needed a central figure to crush so the rebellion could be dispersed. But without Wycliffe, that effort was rendered useless. In a few more years, they will find a different whipping boy and put him to the flames. When they do, they will also dig up Wycliffe's body and burn his bones. Later, they will regret that decision. So, I always say the more things change, the more they stay the same. What you see is government, and that's what the church is, especially at this time. Government, aristocracy and church government, feeling the tear begin to occur. Feeling people begin to go, hey, maybe we should be able to read this Bible thing for ourselves and see what it actually says. Uh, maybe we should know what's going on. Maybe we should be able to think and going, oh, crap, we can't have this. And they need a fall guy. So Wycliffe is the guy that kind of like, you know he's not the only one that asks questions. He was the one that was most effective asking these questions. So we're going to get him. England throws him out. And then the Pope says, get over here. And he says, okay, I'll come, but I'm still going to keep doing my thing. They're getting ready to just crush him, to make anybody that does what he does be afraid. And the jerk, in their eyes, drops dead. Got out of it. And that leaves the rebellion weaker, but still going, because it wasn't crushed. So they'll find a new fall guy, burn his ass, and go, man, we got to make a point. So they dig up this dude and burn his bones. I'll tell you what. We look back at that, we see that as savagery. It's not that much more savage than what your own government will do to retain power. We've just changed the type of savagery that we're doing. When we're tracking every single American today, the implication is you've all done something. Piss us off. And we'll point out whatever it is that you have done. And even if you don't think you've done something... You probably have, and you probably know that's the case. And even if you haven't done anything, the fact that we have all this information would make it very easy for us to insinuate that you've done something and destroy you. No government should have the power to destroy one of its citizens, either through taking their life or their liberty or through slander. And in history... We pay a lot of attention to governments that take liberty through imprisonment and through death, but we seem to ignore how many times government has used slander to its advantage to destroy people. And when you use slander to destroy somebody, you've infringed upon their liberty the same as if you placed them in a cell. The more things change, the more they stay the same. There's two other great ones, A Crisis of Nationhood, Mamma Mia, Lady Berkeley's New School, at tspwiki.com. You can read in today's show notes if you want to. Really, really awesome stuff by Alex. Thank you for what you do for us, Alex, to keep us informed about the past. All right, with that, I want to say, hey, Tim, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad I'm able to be on and talk with you today. Well, cool. Uh, one of the things I want to let people know right off is we're calling you Tim O'Brien today. It's not your real name um, because you want to be able to speak completely candidly and freely with us today. And I'll also let the audience know the reason what we're pointing that out is is really more for any other reason so that some guy that named, named Tim O'Brien somewhere that's a cop that that sounds like you doesn't end up with his butt in a sling over today. 
Yeah, I'm not. I don't have any Irish ancestry, but I'm sure there's an Irish cop out there with that name. <laughs> That's a very cop name, Tim O'Brien, Officer O'Brien. Uh, but anyway, it was a good choice, and I just wanted to point that out. Can you kind of talk about kind of your background, how you became a police officer, and a little bit about how come you're also a prepper before we kind of get into the meat of the topic today? Sure. Um, I know a lot of your I guess that you have on have had kind of a strange way they came into where they ended up being. Um, I've actually wanted to be a police officer for a long time or had wanted to be. Um, since I, as long as I can remember, that's about all I've wanted to do. Uh, I studied criminal justice related topics in high school and was able to uh, utilize the state's dual enrollment um, system to get some free college credit through uh, both my college credit counting for both uh, high school and college credit. Um, it allowed me to go into college with uh, about a year of college studies already under my belt. Um, I was able to graduate with a bachelor's degree uh, in three years with a major in criminal justice and um, been a police officer since graduating from school. I've it's been what I wanted to do, and uh, I'm really fortunate that that's what I was able to get into. As far as being a prepper, has your work in law enforcement been any part of the impetus to, to, to be a prepper as well? Absolutely. Um, we In North Carolina, we have a lot of hurricane activity. Uh, it seems like every time a major storm comes through, everybody goes berserk with hitting the water, the milk, and the bread from the grocery store. Um, you mentioned how crazy Walmart can be. Those seem to be things that fly off the shelf. That and eggs. Um, by having things a little bit, I guess, more ready for us uh, at home, we don't have to fly out every time a uh, storm hits and go to the grocery store or hit the Walmart up. Uh, that's certainly been resulted seeing lack of preparedness in, in law enforcement sometimes. Well, and I think that for a first responder, whether it's law enforcement or a paramedic or anybody that has to go out when other people uh, are in harm's way, that means your family's home alone. And, and the only way you can do that job is to know that you've taken care of them before you leave. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I, I should have mentioned that I'm married, uh, live by myself. With, well, my wife and I live by ourselves. We don't have any kids yet. Uh, but it's good to know that she's taken care of when I'm at work, whether it's with a disaster situation or, or just even going to work, uh, knowing that she's well looked after at the house. Um, it's a good feeling knowing that she's going to be taken care of, you know, since I'm you know, 20, 30 minutes away from where I work. Yeah, definitely. It could be tied up with something as well. Well, I mean, and you've been a law enforcement officer for a while now, and we've had the good, the bad, and the ugly with law enforcement featured on this show. And I'm a huge supporter of police officers and other first responders that do their job and keep their oath and do the things the right way. And I'm a pretty big detractor of people that don't. And I think part of that also has to do with how the public interacts. I've had numerous encounters with the police and never been arrested for anything serious or anything. I've pulled over this or been a witness to something where I've actually called and, and then, you know, worked with a responding officer. And I've had, I would say, one cop that I've ever talked to in my encounters that was a complete dick, and it was over speeding. And I don't know if his wife 
yelled at him that morning or whatever, but this guy was about a six foot four dude and he was steaming, fuming, pissed off because I was 10 miles over the speed limit, which doesn't seem like something to get that <laughs> upset over. And if this guy had asked me to get out of the car, I would have said, I'm sorry, bring another officer here. Uh, so I've only ever seen, and I don't know that it would have been a problem, but I, you know, I've at least had that level of experience where I'm like, oh, this is a dude I would not get out of the car for because his demeanor versus what it should be is not right. And that's a big concern I think a lot of people have. But on the other hand, I think that a lot of these situations could be avoided if people weren't taunting and trying to make a political point with a guy that's just trying to do his freaking job. And there has to be a balance. So some of the stuff we wanted you to talk about today is how to have, you know, when you have an encounter with law enforcement, how to have it be a positive one at least if it can be. But what I want to kind of lead off on instead of that is the other thing we've had a lot of talk about lately is legalization of drugs. And I see mention of it in your notes. So from how do you feel about legalizing drugs from a, a police perspective? And if you have a certain feeling, does it affect the way you do your job right now? Yes. Um, that, that's interesting. You mentioned that um, the, uh, a couple of shows ago, you mentioned um, the Bible Belt probably being the last holdout for um, marijuana and other drugs being illegal. I think there's a lot of truth to that, especially North Carolina is a great state, uh, by and large, with people being prepared and having, uh, I, I guess, more of a preparedness mindset than uh, the Northeast or some of the other places where it, it seems like mindset's just out the wall crazy when it comes to things. Uh, but um, I would love to see marijuana legalized. I'd love to see some other drugs legalized. I'm not sure, you know, it's it's one of those questions that, you know, I'd, I wouldn't have a good answer on drawing a line in the sand somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. what, how, how can you say, you know, marijuana's fine, cocaine's fine, but, but methamphetamine's not, you know, yeah. or... Um, we can use Ritalin on kids in schools, but if you possess Ritalin, you know, in a container in a car and an officer finds it, you know, that that's somehow illegal. It's hard to draw a line in the sand there. Um, something that I've thought about, and I guess my major concern about legalizing marijuana, and I guess maybe this is a, a, a wider civil liberties question, would be if you legalize marijuana from a law enforcement perspective, I think of the number of searches, of vehicle searches, uh, that are based on plain smell marijuana doctrine, where you have probable cause based on uh, the smell of marijuana and the other things that are sometimes found in the vehicle, whether it's, you know, stolen items, a uh, gun, um, I don't know, burglary tools, you know, you name it. Um, I've, I, thinking back, uh, I've, about a year ago, I've, searched a car based on smelling marijuana, found the marijuana. There was marijuana in the car. Uh, There's also a stolen gun that had been uh, reported stolen out of Durham, which is a, a fairly rough city in North Carolina, uh, about a year, year, two years prior to when I stopped the car. Uh, and I, you know, I wouldn't have found, I wouldn't have likely searched the car if it wasn't for the marijuana that I smelled after stopping the car for a headlight out. Sure. Um, you know, so it seems, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it in principle legalized, but then I wonder, you know, what that does 
from a police investigative standpoint when that becomes a useful tool. Because it's useful to you to find legitimate crimes that do involve some level of danger for other citizens. I, I get that. I guess my response to that would be it is completely legal. I won't do it right now because it's 1230 in the afternoon, but it's completely legal <laughs> for me right now to go into my kitchen and, and pour a great big glass of Seagram's uh, whiskey and drink that, mm-hmm. and, and nobody can do hide nor hell about it. But if I'm mm-hmm. operating a vehicle 10 minutes later and I drink of whiskey, you're pulling me out of the car and you got calls and you can look at my car and everything. And I think the most ardent supporter of the legalization of marijuana would admit it is a psychoactive substance and it does have impairment. And this is an interesting question I've never even considered before. If a citizen in Colorado right now where it's now legal to recreationally use marijuana is intoxicated on marijuana, uh, for lack of mm-hmm. a better way to put it, and driving, are they DUI? And yeah, my guess would be they are. And therefore, if you smelled marijuana, just like if you smelled beer, you'd have the same cause to search my vehicle as you did before. But I could be wrong. I don't know. I think you've got a, a great question, a great thought there. And that's, I guess that's my other concern from our, you know, from, I say our, from a law enforcement, law enforcement perspective, uh, is the, is the impairment issue. Uh, I've got written on my my notes here. Um, if you legalize marijuana, what is the legal standard then for determining the level at which somebody's impaired uh, for for driving? Um, and how do you determine that? We don't have a tool yet uh, that's been developed, and maybe this is something that'll come to market, you know, within the next year or so, two yeah. years down the road, where you have a you know, a, a weed version of uh, an alka sensor where you so, yeah, have we're somebody getting, blowing the tube and, you know, tells you how high they are, more or less. <laughs> yeah, see, this we're getting into an area that's really one of those cans of worms. You don't, you know, what are the consequences? So then let me ask you this. Let's say right now I'm driving through North Carolina. You don't know who I am and don't care. And I am mm-hmm. toked up out of my mind on dope. I am high as a freaking kind of marijuana. You mm-hmm. pull me over. You can tell I'm intoxicated. I don't have any on me, though. Right. You have right. me do your little test and I fail it stone cold, but you really don't have proof that I'm intoxicated. So now you're saying with implied consent, either blow or you're admitting guilt. Fine. I blow in your little alcohol meter and it says zero dot zero. Uh, are you telling me I can't be prosecuted for uh, driving under the influence that there's no mechanism in place right now for the person that's stoned out of their gourd driving down the road? No, there, there still is. Um, and I know other states might treat, uh, implied consent in, in DWI or DUI, however, you know, the terminology is dependent on the state. North Carolina has yeah. got a two-part, uh, DWI law. Uh, we have actually three-part if you want to consider cocaine. Any amount of cocaine in somebody's system constitutes impaired driving. That's one thing right. that's written right into the state statute. Um, and then we have what's called a per se versus uh, having a per se limit, uh, 0.08 or higher, is impaired by statute of alcohol. Plus, okay. there's the catch-all impaired on some impairing substance, whether it be alcohol, whether it be marijuana, whether it be uh, pick your pick, PCP, um, and in which case an officer can, can compel testing under the implied consent law for uh, either a urinalysis or a blood draw to hospital. Um, if the implied consent law can get kind of fuzzy, but if the mm-hmm. officer has to, 
um, you can actually have a search warrant issued for blood. Um, the issue that hospitals and law enforcement sometimes butt heads with is what happens when you have the guy that, you know, that's psyched out of his gourd on, I'll use PCP as an example because that's one where somebody can break real bad. Um, and you've got four police officers holding the person down and that nurse that's got the search warrant in her face is scared to death that the guy's going to come up off the table or she's sticking a needle in his arm. You sure. know, that the, the hospital has a liability concern that their staff might get hurt in a case like that, which is understandable. But, you know, a search warrant's a search warrant's a search warrant. I don't know. I think with that one, you restrain yeah. him from there until he gets tired. I mean, I, we had one guy I've ever seen in my life on PCP in my high school, and he tried to pull oak tree out of the ground. And uh, he, he, <laughs> he, did that for about five, he did that for about five minutes, and then he didn't do anything. He dislocated his two shoulders, and he just kind of sat there. So, I mean, I think there's basically what you've just said, though, is there is a mechanism in place. Yeah, there is. And that's not as clean cut as alcohol. You don't have a number that you know yes or no on, but there's a mechanism in place. So that actually makes that can of worms a little less slippery. We won't go deep into this because it doesn't really affect your job per se, but there's a whole, like, guys that do job in your sector, like, so if marijuana becomes legal and I'm on parole, is it still a parole violation? There's all kinds of stuff that because this has been illegal for so long and treated as an illegal activity for so long, we really don't know how we're going to deal with it. But based on the tide, I think we're going to deal with it one way or another. You're, you're probably right. It's, it's, it's coming. It's just a matter of figuring out, you know, what the what the ramifications are to it. You know, it's not an easy answer. It's not as easy as saying, Yes, we deal with it, and you know, not look at the consequences, and know, you know, we're gonna we're gonna be the last holdout in the union. Um, yeah, but you yeah. like the long-term consequences. We don't know what they are. Yeah, would be like another one would be so a lot of companies do random drug testing, or they do drug testing pre-hire. Well, now I'm in Colorado. I want a job. I'm con- I'm conducting a completely legal activity in the smoking of marijuana. I'd like a job, please. Yes, we're ready to hire you because you don't get the test until you're. You know, they don't spend the money on you for that until you've basically been told the job's yours unless we have a reason not to hire you. I go take a drug test. I pop positive for marijuana. You don't want to give me a job. I'm like, well, wait a minute. You're discriminating against me. Well, we'll jump to jump to Seattle. Uh, Seattle Metropolitan Police Department's dealing with that very issue. You know, now really? That, you know, now that marijuana's been legalized in uh, Washington State, or they're dealing with they're dealing with that issue, um with the new hires and also the officers they currently have on, you know, is that a disciplinary, uh, is that something that the department can discipline? Is that something the department by policy can, can say, you know, we don't want officers, uh, who tested positive for marijuana serving on the streets, you know, that it, I, I don't know what the answer is there, but you know, that's something big departments and small departments are going to have to I think you can make point. a case for it based on fit for duty because let's say I want a job working for your department. I've seen some overweight officers, but generally by the time they let you in the academy, you ain't going to be 450 pounds because you can't pass physical examination. So I guess you could, but it gets, <laughs> it gets really great. Now, does Washington have recreational? I thought they only had medical. If you got medical, um, maybe I might have this wrong as far as uh, statewide. I know Seattle uh, is dealing with, uh, maybe it's the Seattle district attorney, but they're, the Seattle area 
Uh, I had read recently the Seattle Police Department is dealing with that as an oh. issue. It might be that the Seattle, the prosecutor for you know, whatever Seattle's county or whatever the district is. Just isn't prosecuting or something. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of that, too, just for like, you know, if the person has under a certain amount, we're just not going to do anything. And I'm uh, sure there's something in Colorado, too. I hadn't even thought about that. I just remember yeah. these articles being Seattle. Well, I'm thinking, you know, if you want a job for the federal government in Colorado, the federal government can still say this is a violation of federal law, whether Colorado says so or not. But if you want to wait for, for the Colorado state government, you guys are the ones that says legal. It's mm-hmm. we, we probably should move on because that's like just a, a it, it's interesting how many worms come out of that can when the can is opened up. Um, and it also makes you wonder what, what how different would things be if we had never gone down that road in the first place? Because um, it was really sold to the American people under a lie. We won't, we won't go there. But let's talk more about <laughs> what we brought you on to actually talk about. So most interactions with law enforcement officers in this day and age, I don't know if it's a full majority, but you know, close to a majority at least, usually start as a traffic interaction. Somebody's pulled over, somebody goes through a checkpoint, somebody somewhere or another, it usually begins, you're in a vehicle, and an officer stops you for some reason. What is the, you know, let's say the uh, the ideal interaction at that point versus the worst possible interaction at that point? I guess the worst interaction would be to, to run, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, to not stop. The I think the important thing to remember about a traffic stop is it's a seizure. Um, you know, you, you can get on YouTube and watch uh, countless videos of people, you know, questioning whether the, the traffic stop itself is even a seizure. Um, you know, that, I guess that would be the first thing I'd point out is at that point, you know, the officer has, uh, reasonable suspicion of always some kind of crime has taken place. They turn down the blue lights or, I guess, red lights in some states. Uh, the person's on the side of the road, officer walks up to the car. It's probably not the immediate time as soon as he walks up to, to have a conversation about whether or not the the stop is a seizure. <laughs> well, because, because correct me if I'm wrong, but it is. You have to have a reason to pull me over. You clocked me over the limit. Um, I have a safety violation. There's no license plate on my car. One way or another, I am being detained because yeah. the answer to can I leave is no. And if that I leave, right. then you can certainly arrest me for resisting arrest, fleeing the scene, whatever. So unlike and we'll get into this in a bit, you walking up to me on the street and saying, who are you? Um, I am operating a vehicle with a license, and I've been stopped, and yes, I'm being detained. So at that point, I need to treat it like what it is on my end, a detainment. Because it is. Whether whether I think it should be or not doesn't really matter. It is. At that point, uh, it's a a null null and void issue. It, It is at that point. Um, if you if you want to contest it at that point, odds are you're going to be drug out of the car. Backup's going to be called. You know, and the car could be impounded. You know, worst case scenario, you could be booked for you know whatever charge. You know, wants to be trumped up at that point, I guess. When you uh, were five minutes away, most times from either a warning or a, a simple ticket. And and that's that's the thing. I know from my perspective, and I'm uh, with working in a, a rural agency. Um, I have to be proactive. What I mean by that is, 
I'm going to stop for, for very stupid, kidly things, uh, at least from the citizen's perspective, but I'm going to be looking for more. You know, I'm going to be stopping for uh, the person that uh, bumps or, or ends up crossing over the center line. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is this an impaired driver? You know, um, I'm going to stop the taillight, uh, and when I walk up to the car, I'm going to be shining a flashlight in the car that's at night looking for a gun tucked under the seat, looking for uh, a, a crowbar in the back, looking for, I'm trying to think, uh, stolen merchandise. You know, a, a tiller, you know, if, it, if it's a Ford Fiesta or Ford Pinto with a, you know, with a uh, Briggs and Stratton tiller with a Walmart tag, <laughs> and then dangling out the window, uh, yeah. you know, shoved in the back, that's probably a, a pretty good sign if it's, you know, one thirty in the morning. But that tiller wasn't purchased legally. Um, yeah, I'm going to be looking for stuff, and if you know, like you said, five to ten minutes, it, you, the the violation stopped. I mean, you provided you've cooperated with the officer. They're probably going to hand your license back to you and have, tell you have a good night. Um, yeah, I, I know there's some there's some assholes out there. There's some bad officers that that are going to be high and mighty and make Granny feel bad for. You know, for having uh, the, the license plate light out that she didn't know about. Uh, it's been out for two days and, you know, burned out because the, the early frost came and the light bulb snapped. Um, and those officers, it's detestable to see that kind of behavior. You know, yeah, they need to be washing dishes out of Denny's or something, in my opinion. I mean, I just, I, I, I and I, I don't get that person being an officer, and, and frankly, my bigger problem with it usually is that there seems to be too much tolerance from other officers with that guy being that way. And, and I don't know why yeah. that is. You know, is it is it just we take care of our own? Is it because it's actually difficult to do anything about it and you cause problems for yourself by trying or what have you? But, I mean, I saw one this morning where a cop tried to stop this lady that was mentally impaired on the freeway, in mm-hmm. San Diego, and she tried to get away, and he grabbed her and threw the ground and started beating on her like it was an MMA fight. This 50-some-year-old lady. And, and this guy is just decking the crap out of her. And a plain clothes officer comes up uh, and, and and helps apprehend her. I mean, if it was me, I'd, I'd just get, get the hell away from this person. I'll take over from here. Yeah, we're taking her into custody for her safety at this point, but you don't even need to be near her. And mm-hmm. I have never seen in any of these videos... The other officer, in any way, reprimand or take over the situation and, you know, basically push the other officer out of the situation. I don't know if there's procedural reasons for, reasons for that or something, but, I mean, to me, that's a huge problem. Because that's basically saying, yeah, as long as you get away with it, I'm not doing nothing. That's kind of how I feel. Well, as an, as an aside, I think, uh, figuratively speaking, there's a lot of mentally impaired drivers out on the road today. Um, but I think as a culture, um, as a police culture, I should say, the, perceive, the perception is if we air our dirty laundry, uh, we're going to get sued. We're going to be disrespected by the public. But like, like you said, the problem is, um, I know um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, if police aren't open and honest about the bad things they do, um, the public's going to be. And you've got people out there like the cop watch 
uh, website, you know, the, the post videos that show the worst of the worst of the worst. And if police were more proactive with uh, maybe providing explanations of why things were done a certain way or why uh, things were not handled correctly or why Officer, you know, Joe Blow was absolutely off the wall crazy and why he got fired. Um, and that's something that gets into personnel law and you can't disclose a whole lot regardless of employer. Um, I think the public would have a better view of police. Um, well, I think they would have a better view too, though, if when you saw these cases, that there's some of these cases, they are, like you said, the worst of the worst, you can tell right there that guy's out of line. Mm-hmm. And if you saw another officer intervene, you know, mm-hmm. more often than not, as opposed to never, I, I don't think you have to, like, have that guy then make a public statement about what a dumbass his partner was or whatever, but just the, the fact that the intervention would occur. Like, the guy grabbed mm-hmm. my shoulder, pushed him out of the way, and, no, I've got this. I think that would make people feel a lot safer around law enforcement because you'd because what everybody feels like now is they've got each other's back. You're, you're absolutely where, right. Where what they want to feel like is you guys are supposed to have our back. That's why you're there. Right. And the, I guess the counter argument that I can think of, you know, I, I agree with you. Um, what I know a lot of my colleagues would say is why we want to make, you know, if if, if Officer Joe Blow is is beaten on, you know, thug, and I'll get I'll get real politically incorrect here, thug Antoine, you know, the neighborhood. Yeah black guy that's that's known for doing drugs, known for, you know, what you know what happened He's known the worst bag. of the worst. Why, yeah, why are we gonna, crazy lady walking down the road. This guy's a known douchebag. Okay, I got you. Why are why are we gonna make him feel like he's got control over the department when you know, when Officer Goody Two Shoes walks in and gets and gets you know, he's got what's coming to him. That's that's the perspective. You know, and I hate to see it and I I I'm, I agree with you. It shouldn't happen, and I'm going to step in and do something if it does. But I know that's the perspective of a lot of my colleagues. You know, Antoine's got what's coming to him. Uh, you know, it, it's just I didn't see it. nothing. You didn't see nothing. And that's getting a little harder to play that game when there's so many citizens with cameras. A lot of departments are putting cameras on the officers. Uh, oh, we'll, just, uh, we'll just arrest all the people with cameras around. The problem is you can't do that when yeah. 20 people are standing around with smartphones. No, Free State Project has groups together now where they will give one person shit, but that one person's already texted, and there's literally people pulling up, and there's 15, 20 people with cameras from 15, 20 different angles, and you can't pull that crap anymore. Um, right. I'd like to see all officers with a, with a body camera. And I think that would be better for everybody because, one, it's my word against yours. No, it's not. <laughs> there it is. Here's what happened. There's no there's no question then. The other thing is I think if both sides in a, in a situation know that something's being recorded, both sides, not always, but in general, are on better overall behavior. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, you know, you uh, aside from – What's the what's the show on the trash TV? Jerry Springer. Aside from yeah, 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 yeah. you know Jerry Springer was a you know (laughs) you know. But aside from that, you get two people that you know are are gonna cuss each other out face to face. You get them with a camera and a you know a third party that you know either is holding the camera or interviewing the two of them, and they're gonna be on best behavior. 
Um, you're and I think it's right. even more so in your situation because you want to keep your job, and even if I'm going to jail, I want to go for as little time as possible. Yeah, I don't want right. I don't want to add a couple years if I've got a couple days, right? Now, now so, I'd, want, I'd add one thing: the caveat to to filming, um, and uh, you know, law enforcement needs to understand this. Public needs to understand this. You're getting one perspective, you know, from whatever the pixels resolution yeah. of, the, of the camera is, you know, and that thing that's happening off camera or happens before that camera clicks on, it's just an important caveat to remember. Something may, you know, there's there's a video up on YouTube that circulates, shows the officer getting his um, ass handed to him by somebody from Vermont, I believe. It's a state trooper that just gets cussed out, uh, called everything in the book uh, as he's giving a citation to somebody. And it came out that that interaction was being selectively edited by the officer to show him getting uh, the oh. bad, you know, the bad, the the verbal abuse from the citizen, but he had antagonized it, and that wasn't shown on camera. You know, yeah, so they, it, it cuts both, both ways. ways. Yeah, it goes both ways. There was a, a long time ago here, before the days everybody had a taser, there was a guy that jumped in a car and took off with two children in it out of a parking lot because some woman was an idiot and left her kids in the car. And he was chased and they had the helicopters out and everything. He bailed out of the car and he's up in the woods and the, the, the helicopter films this and the cops got the gun telling him to get down and he mm -hmm. ends up shooting the guy in the leg. Well, from that perspective, it looked like he ran up, told the guy to get down one time. The guy didn't get down, so he shot him in the leg. Well, when it right. came out, the guy he was chasing was about 6'6", and put together, and this was a relatively small officer, and he was the only one there, and he was going, come on, right, MF, right, come on, I'll, I'll put that gun <laughs> up on your head. You, on, on your show. you, you ain't going to stop me, I'm going to get away, I'll beat your ass, MF, MF, MF. And the, the cops like, this guy grabbed two kids, he's fleeing the scene. I do believe if I engage him physically, he's going to beat my ass. He's not getting away, and he put one in his leg. I don't right. know that that was the right procedure, but the reality versus the publicized things were very, very different from each other. You know, I think it was actually one of the things that led to Dallas being one of the first cities to go tasers for all officers, at least all mm -hmm. officers willing to be tasered. I think that's another thing we need to understand about you guys. If you want to carry a taser, most departments I know say, before you get your taser, guess what you get to do? You, you get, get to, to get be through tasered it. <laughs> so you know what it's like, you know? Not not a pleasant experience. Uh, you had the CS gas, I'm sure, in the, in the yeah. Army. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have a different reason for that. They say that's so that you'll have confidence in your equipment. Because you would never believe that it was that bad if you didn't experience it. Um, I, I was like, you know, I, I think I would. And then after experience it, I was like, no, they're right. I have a whole new level of confidence and appreciation <laughs> my chemical gear now, because this is a non-persistent, non-lethal agent. And some of the stuff out there in the chemical biological world can do things like have a person convulse so, so, uh, violently that they break their own back. So I'm like, yeah, I, I think I will take good care of my gear now. You trusted it. Yeah. Um, let's kind of keep this going, though. Like, So we talked about how like, if I, if I get pulled over in a car, I'm being detained, period, right? right. And, and I need to act as, as that. 
But what is the difference between a voluntary encounter and a lawful detention? I mean, pretty much, I think when the when you say am I being detained and the guy says yeah, there, you're there. But what what gives an officer the right or authority to detain? And I, I guess my other part of that question is why in so many of these instances where the cop is demanding something from the person and the person says am I being detained? Won't the officer just answer the freaking question? Uh-huh. I wish I had an answer for you on that because it, it it's a yes or no question. It's not a maybe. You know, there's there's yeah. no maybe there. Um yeah. and, and basically if you're being detained, uh law enforcement should it should be KISS. That should be the motto for law enforcement. Keep it simple, stupid. Um if you're being detained, the officer has reasonable grounds to believe that a crime may have taken place. Now, is that vague? A little bit, yes. I'll break it down here. Reasonable suspicion has to be just that, reasonable. Graham versus Connor, Supreme Court case, came out in 1989, says that we have to view encounters with citizens from the officer's perspective on the ground at the time. We can't look at it 2020 after the fact and armchair quarterback it. We have to look at what the officer saw and all those factors that came into the encounter. What that means is if you run out of a store and uh, you're carrying a bag of merchandise and the officer sees you run out, the, the person looks at the officer, his eyes get three times bigger as he's running down the street, and the officer stops him and says, hey, what's going on? And the guy keeps running. Uh, I think the officer at that point would have reasonable grounds, reasonable suspicion to believe that a crime may have taken place, whether it's a... Uh, you know, in this case, uh, possibly a robbery in progress or a theft in progress, maybe a purse snatching if, if there was a purse involved. Um, we have to look at it from a law enforcement officer's perspective. That being said, it can't be just a hunch. I can't, I can't be driving around, you know, see somebody I don't like uh, and walk up to them and say, hey, let me see an ID. And they are not free to go. That that. It's got to be more than a hunch. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd say if I if I if you're in uniform, you're clearly a cop, and you're come walking down the street, and you see me look at you and haul ass. I mean, that alone is like why, you know, well, why that, would you that do would that? warrant that would warrant uh, investigation for sure. <laughs> now, if, I, um, if I'm out if I'm out in jogging clothing, and right before I took off, I was looking at my watch, taking my pulse. And then I took off running. Well, no, he didn't run because he saw you. He ran because he was running. And I, I think we have to give you guys some flexibility there. But I've seen many instances where, and of course, this is all being taped, and there's a reason it's being taped. Mm-hmm. But the, the the citizen says to the officer, am I being detained? And they do not get an answer. They don't get an answer. And, and in yes. that situation, it's a dangerous thing for the person because – the answer might have been no, but yet I'm talking to you, and now because you're walking away, and I haven't told you you can leave, I can claim you're fleeing the scene. You're absolutely right, and that's and that's the other thing that courts have looked at. Um, officers may say, yes, you're free to leave, but when they're shuffle-stepping to keep you from walking down the sidewalk, uh, yeah. no. The, the courts have said if you're restricting somebody's movement. That's, that's like being free to leave a cult, right? Right. You're free to leave any time while the spotlight's on you and the armed guards are at the door. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not going to work. And then the next level up 
from reasonable suspicion is probable cause. And this is where this is where some people get a little bit hung up. In order to charge a crime or to arrest somebody or to search in cases of whether it's a search warrant that, that's been issued for a house or whether it's probable cause on the vehicle exception, which we can get to oh, if you want to, uh, probable cause is what an officer actually has uh, to have in order to bring a charge before a court. Uh, reasonable suspicion is a step lower than probable cause. What that means is an officer can investigate something happening uh, based on reasonable suspicion, and something might not come out of it. If you've got, uh, let me use insurance as an example. If an officer uh, runs, runs a license plate, finds that a car uh, does not have insurance on it, according to North Carolina's uh, DMV database, they stop yep. the car. Uh, one of the things in our state statute regarding insurance is that the person being cited has to be the owner of the car. Uh, if you've got somebody borrowing a car, uh, you would have, at that point, you'd have reasonable suspicion to make the stop. The stop's already taken place, but you don't have probable cause to go forward and charge the driver with the insurance violations. This is my brother's car. I didn't know his insurance was lapped. He threw me the keys and said, take it to the store, right? You're right. And it would be, and I think most people would see, and that's an easy example, you don't have probable cause at that point to go forward with it. Sometimes you might have circumstances on the ground that make it look like a crime's taking place, but with a five-minute investigation, the reasonable suspicion is found that there wasn't a crime taking place, and so there's not probable cause for a crime. And the person ends up getting released without being charged. That's what an investigation entails. I got you. I mean, I think if you're – so you, let's say you just got a call. Some guy did something, no matter what it is, but it's a crime. And he was reported as being a approximately six-foot-tall white guy with a beard and a blue jacket – and I'm standing there in a blue jacket, you're going to talk to me. Now, I haven't done anything at all. I just matched the description of something you've been told. If at that point you came up to me and said, sir, who are you? I would probably tell you, just because I'm tired of that type of thing happening, I don't know that that's any of your business. Why do you need to know? But if your answer was, because I said so, I would probably fall back to, well, am I being detained? If you said, because we just had a report of a guy matching your description robbing a store, I'd say, oh, that wasn't me. Here's my ID. Right? And there you because, go. Because yeah. you've explained to me why you're bothering me. Because as far as I'm concerned, you're bothering me. I didn't do anything, and I didn't ask you to come over here. And if I just, and, and also I'm thinking, well, Ace, if I just robbed the store a half block down the road, I'm probably not sitting here talking to this random person on the side of the street. However, I will acknowledge I've watched dumbest criminals, and there are people that do shit like that. Well, and that's the thing, proximity and time. You know, if, if you've got somebody matching the description and they're in close proximity and it's uh, five minutes after the alleged crime took place, yes, they're probably going to be stopped and, and a detainment will be lawful. If it's uh, two hours after the fact and the description is, you know, extremely vague, you know, it's a white male uh, wearing uh, a wife beater and, and shorts, uh, well, if it's if it's Texas, you know, you're outside a gas station. Odds are there's probably a few two or three males. of those in yeah. somewhere. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. driving a truck. <laughs> yeah, um, and that would not be reasonable. 
Uh, that's sometimes the officers got to make a split second decision on what's what would be reasonable. And, you know, and the courts have um, hours to deliberate over that. Um, but you know, ultimately it comes down to explaining to somebody if they're you know if they're wanting to know why they be detained. I think I think the five minutes it takes to educate someone is is worth the information and the good relations you have rather than you know, walking up and being uh, officer gruff and rude. That, that's yeah, not going to work. Yeah, super trooper or some shit, right? You know, um, I mean, and then, see, I've been telling people on the air, and I need to kind of point this out. I've, I've just come to learn this, that let's say you did walk up to me and ask me who I am, and you have no reason to do so. And my, my question to you of am I being detained is eventually after you hem and haw around and answered with a no, and I say, well, I'm not telling you who I am then. Screw off, and I'm leaving. Um, in a lot of states, we're done. You, you don't have a reason. And if you do at that, if you if you do detain me at that point, you've got. To, I'm just going to let you do it, and then you've got a problem. Um, you're, you're but there are right states. But there are states that now have what they call stop and identify and versions thereof, where that's no longer the case. Florida is one of them. And to me, that is not con- – I don't see how that's constitutional, but I think citizens need to know what the law is in their state, especially if they're going to, you know, if you want to call it this, play that game. Because and just because you saw the person do it on YouTube, get away with it. If you're in Florida, especially in Dade County, where it seems like they're specifically telling officers, which is – this is way outside of the bounds – you know, if, if 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 it's a young teenage black male in the park, you talk to him. Um, you're absolutely right. And, it's and good I to know, know what your local happens. state is and in your your ordinances as well, because there's some even locally. Uh, we have we have departments in North Carolina where uh, local ordinances can be as bizarre. I know one city. Uh, if you swear or use any kind of profanity. Uh, directed at an officer, you know, regardless of what else is taking place, they have a city ordinance that's arrestable uh, regarding swearing at an officer. Um, and depending on the circumstances and the, the mental state of the person and, and God knows what other things are going on, you know, that that's probably something I'm going to ignore most of the time. And I consider it, you know, something that I need to just brush off my back and, you know, yeah, uh, not worry about. But if you live in that jurisdiction or you're passing through, it might be good to know about that. Yeah. Um, like that you said, doesn't depending on the state. That either, though. That, that, that one seems like complete bullshit. I, I, I don't know how. I mean, that, that seems like something begging to be challenged in court. It really it, does. It probably will be one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they arrest yeah. the wrong guy, when they arrest, like, Jeff Slacker, you wouldn't know who he is. He's a very well-known uh, uh, ambulance-chasing attorney. Um, here in Texas is on t- on TV all the time, or Jim Adler. You want to arrest one of those guys' nephews or something for that? Then then that's going to be an interesting thing. We've got the uh, I think Sam Bernstein's the one that advertises in this neck of the woods. Hmm. Uh, yeah, ambulance chasers. <laughs> <laughs> the hammer they call the one guy here. I'll hammer and get you money. Um, and I don't like those guys, but every once in a while, every 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 just like pests in the garden. Every being has a function that's valuable if you figure out how to channel it, and that's one I'd like to see there. Um, so we talked about this a little bit, but what is the difference between consent probable co- and probable cause as it relates to search and seizure laws? 
Ooh, that could we could write a book on it. And I'm you know, I'll preface this with saying I'm not a I'm not a constitutional scholar and I'm I'm certainly not a lawyer. Um but in its you know, in in my perspective, my limited perspective, I'd say consent is giving freely, you know, voluntarily allowing a search or an interaction to take place. Um probable cause is where it's happening based on uh, articulable facts that there's a crime that has probably taken place or in the case of a search warrant uh, that there are probably items related to a crime um, as as far as a house is concerned a judge has to issue a search warrant. What that means is there's been an investigative process that's taken place where uh, an officer has put together the documents the court has reviewed it and said, okay, the officer has shown the, the court and has uh, proven the burden of proof that I'm going to sign off to it. You have a judge's signature before that even takes place. The important exception to this would be cars. Um, Carroll Doctrine um, is, uh, yeah, I'm losing my train of thought. Carroll Doctrine is the name of the exception. Uh, that means that if an officer has probable cause to believe that um, there's something illegal in a vehicle related to the investigation, they can search the vehicle without a search warrant. Um, we talked about marijuana briefly earlier. Uh, smell of marijuana constitutes probable cause. What that means is that an officer smells marijuana when the windows roll down. Officer can search everything inside the car, including lock glove boxes, trunks, and the engine compartment. Officer could theoretically tear the car apart, take out the panels, take out the airbags, take out every part of the car, lay it outside on the side of the street and search the car down to the nuts and bolts. Does that happen? No, not most of the time. Um, as far as a, you know, that, that's as far as a car. And the reason for that is that the courts have, have ruled or I guess have determined that an individual has uh, not as great an expectation of privacy when they're out in public um, as when they're on private property, such as a residence. And that's why you don't have to have a search warrant to search a car versus searching, uh, like, a house. Sure. Um, sure. The burden of probable cause is lower because I don't think you can just, if you pulled me over for speeding, that's all you saw happen, you have no reasonable suspicion that anything's in that vehicle, and you say, can I search your car? And I say, I don't want you to know. Um, without anything else, you may do it, but you're not doing it legally at that point. You have to have some compelling reason, maybe, but not to the level of coming through my house and going through my, you know, my my chest of drawers in my bedroom. Well, you're correct, except the burden's the same. Uh, the reason that uh, you don't have to have a search warrant for cars, though, is uh, uh, I could be wrong here, but the exigency of having a moving vehicle as well as the... the yeah, I could leave while you're getting your warrant. And the, and the time required to search a car is so much less than, you know, searching a residence that you know, I think the courts have determined that it's not inconveniencing the person uh, as long as the officer has probable cause, and that's the important thing. They have to have okay. that in order to search. Um, now, what you mentioned with speeding and consent, um, somebody can always give consent, um, and I'm surprised it, 
surprise the daylights out of me sometimes, you know, that you ask people for consent and they give it to you. You know, and it, some of it's how you ask it. If you, if you ask and, and feel out how the person is, sometimes you can figure out the best way to ask them and, and get a, yes, I'll let you search, you know, and come to find out they've got, you know, a kilo of cocaine underneath their seat. You know, and all, and all it would have taken was no, you know, in some cases, and you wouldn't have ever found that. Um, but a person can always provide consent to allow you to search, whether it's their person, uh, meaning their physical person and clothes. They can provide consent to have you search their car if they're the legal possessor of it. Or in the case of a knock and talk, um, you walk up to a, a door, uh, knock on the door, the person comes to the door, and we'll, we'll make this real clear so we don't have a legal conundrum. It's the owner of the house. They, you know, their name's on the house with the registered deeds. Um, they say, sure, search the house. Um, officer walks in, probably with another officer, they search the house. That, that, that's perfectly legal. I mean, the, the two parties at that point have entered into an agreement. Sure, you know, that, that makes sense. Now, here's my thing. I can't see the advantage of ever answering the question, can I search blank, with yes. I I I can't ever say yes. Because you're asking me, it's probably indicating that you need that yes to do it. Um, Unless you would just say, I'm going to do it. I think sometimes uh, people think the police are not going to search thoroughly. Um, yeah. In which case they are correct. There's there's lazy cops out there that are going to shine the flashlight in the car and say, okay, looks good, you know, and and cop Bubba has you move on. Um, so sometimes I think it's a perception that cops aren't going to be thorough. Um, I think sometimes the perception is that it's easier and less inconvenient to let them search for five minutes and have the conversation that. Um, probably legally can't take place where they're, you know, where the person's detained for another 45 minutes for the police to keep asking the question 10 different ways. Um, and that would be clearly unlawful. But I, I, I got think, a reason you might say yes when you knew you had some shit in your car. It might not be a smart play, but I can tell you why you might do it. Because what's the, when you, I know you found, you know, coke or meth or paraphernalia or a gun or a knife. And I guarantee you the number one thing that the person driving the car tells you when you find that is, that ain't mine. I don't know how that got there, right? So some of these people may be thinking, it really isn't mine. That if they get taken to jail and they go to court, they're going to be like, it wasn't mine. I don't know how it got there. If I knew it was there, I would have never told this fool he was allowed to search my car with no resistance. You're right. It is. That's a good legal argument. I don't think it's a good play. I mean, it would be better to not do it in the first place. But I, I can see where that might be in the mind of the semi-sophisticated idiot criminal. Well, and if you've got, if you've got, uh, say, we'll say drugs again, since that seems to be the the top button issue right now. Uh, if you've got um, kilos of cocaine stuffed into the seat where it's not easily to be, you know, easy to be found, but you've got uh, a crack pipe present. You know, in a in a glove box where the officer is going to find that crack pipe, you know, jump up and down and say, "Hey, I found a crack pipe." You know, the person goes to jail, gets arrested, they get the car back, and the cocaine stays in the car where it's at, uh, not been found, and that would have been far greater of a crime that's discovered. You know, 
from yeah. a law enforcement perspective than just the crack pipe that was, you know, it's so much easier sometimes to, to let them find the easy, you know, to let us as police find the easy thing when the hard thing stays, stays covered up. Sure. Cause like now they're in for paraphernalia and it's not that big a deal really um, on it being a big deal. Talk to people about, because what some people would, you know, the, the defense I heard recently when someone was detained, because uh, they were stopped for a, a traffic infraction, and they said, well, it's an infraction, it's not a detainment. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, but you've got basically an infraction, is, is my understanding, infraction, a misdemeanor, or a felony. Those are the three types of, let's call it, arrestable offenses. So what, what are those, What are the? where are the lines between those? An infraction is uh, it basically something you're not going to be arrested for. An infraction would be a, a moving violation of some sort, uh, say a stoplight being run. Um, a lot of your uh, safe movement type things where you you don't signal before you make a lane change, uh, you pass illegally, um, you follow too closely. A lot of those are infractions where it's something that, that the DMV or, or Secretary of State, whatever the state agency that administers, uh, light, you know, driver's licenses for your state, um, they might suspend the license, but that's not going to be something that, that you're going to be able to be arrested on by, by state statute or uh, case law. Uh, misdemeanor is mm, a arrestable offense, but it's something typically, if you receive any kind of jail sentence, it's going to be something less than 180 days. Now, it can vary by, by the state to state, but a misdemeanor is a is a small crime. It's your petty, your your lars your misdemeanor larceny, which would be in North Carolina, is less than a thousand dollars. Anything less than thousand dollars would be a misdemeanor larceny, compared to your felony larcenies, which may be greater than that. Um, your more serious moving violations can be misdemeanors. In North Carolina, uh, failing to sign a registration card for a long time was an arrestable offense. Um, there was some things that are on the books that have been arrestable misdemeanors that have been taken off the books or reclassified recently. Um, your felonies are your highest crimes. They're your murders, your rapes, uh, your felony possession of drugs with large amounts. Uh, North Carolina, we have a uh, fraud statute uh, related. It's called false pretense, kind of a catch-all fraud statute. Uh, that's a felony. Um, there's some felony, bizarre, off-the-wall crazy things in North Carolina, such as larceny of pine cones. Um, but that that's more of a humorous thing than a you know, than a you know felony that I'd consider real serious. Um, Sounds like statism to me. <laughs> Pinecone. You know, there was a senator or a state congressman somewhere along the line that, you know, had a complaint in their district, and that must have been what prompted that. I guess. I don't know, man. Um, so, in North Carolina, you guys have open carry. How is- does... How does case law affect that? I mean, how, how does that is you know is there any type of thing that is there any complexities because of that in, in North Carolina? You know, I think the important thing when I've looked over case law, and I, this is something I re- I've researched pretty in depth um, due to the I mean, you look at YouTube and the sheer volume 
of uh, police encounters that have been recorded, I'd say the vast majority um, are open carry um, activists. Um, and I feel like at some point we're going to have my open carry activists come to my quaint town, and I want to be prepared to to know the legal complexities related to it. Uh, North Carolina is an open carry state. Uh, that being said, we also are a common law state. Now, what that means is, in addition to having infractions, misdemeanors, and felonies all on the books, we also are, go by the common law. What that means is there are certain offenses uh, that are not in, uh, they're not codified, uh, but they are, uh, by case law, they're also arrestable or um, against the law. An example in North Carolina would be false imprisonment. That is not, there's not a specific statute for false imprisonment, but it's been charged and it's been upheld by the courts. Thus, it's, it's, a, it's a law that's on the books through case law. And what we have related to open carry is a uh, going on to the terror of the people um, charge or, a, I guess, offense. The elements of that, um, let me make sure I've got this pulled up so I'm giving you the right information because uh, this is fairly important here. Um, the elements for someone that's guilty of that are someone that, A, arms himself or herself with an unusual and dangerous weapon, which related to guns, a gun qualifies for that. Two, they go about for the purpose of terrifying others. And three, they go about on public highways. Four, in a manner to cause terror to the people. Now, elements two and four are similar. Um, but essentially, that I think that important one to remember is uh, manner to cause terror to people. If you've got somebody that's carrying a gun down the side of the road, um, and Granny calls 911, says there's somebody with a gun on the side of the road, the police are going to respond. They have an obligation to respond to every call they're dispatched to. That being said, depending on the circumstances that take place when the officer rolls up, that, in, that officer may or may not demand ID. I can see it going uh, from a consensual encounter to to something where a detainment takes place. I can see it also taking place where where the uh, voluntary encounter stays completely voluntary and the person goes their way, the officer goes the other, um, and the two agree to part ways on other terms. Um, case law from 1848, uh, State versus Huntley, a North Carolina state case, uh, says in the opinion, no man amongst us carries about with him, it about him, referring to guns, as one of his everyday accruements as a part of his dress. And never we trust will the day come when any deadly weapon will be worn or wielded in our peace-loving and law-abiding state as an appendage of manly equipment. It continues on another part of the opinion to say, though, that by itself, uh, although a gun is an unusual weapon, it is to be remembered that the carrying of a gun per se constitutes no offense for any lawful purpose, either of business or amusement. The citizen is at perfect liberty to carry his gun. It is the wicked purpose and the mischievous result which essentially constitute the crime. He shall not carry this or any other weapon of death 
to terrify and alarm, and in such manner as naturally will terrify and alarm a peaceful people. Now, I can see an officer's interpretation of that one specific case related to this offense going either way. I can see an officer saying, okay, I've got reasonable suspicion when you've got mm, several people calling about the guy walking down the road with the gun. I have reasonable suspicion to believe he's terrorizing people. Now, does that mean he's going to be charged? Remember, probable cause is a higher standard of proof. The officer may have reasonable suspicion, which means the person is legally detained and legally bound to provide ID. But the officer sure. may, you know, run that name and release him. I can see the interpretation going that way. Yeah, here's how I feel. Interpretation so, going the other way. So if I decide to strap my AK on and walk down a public street, mm-hmm. I know full well in our society today somebody's probably going to call the police. Doesn't mean yeah. I'm breaking the law, but I know full well that's the case. When you come out there to talk to me. It, it, it kind of sucks for you that you're not doing something more productive with your time. And, and I'll get to my opinion of these activists here in a minute. But the reality is you should be able to make some legitimate, reasonable assertion of what's going on. If I'm walking down the road, spinning this thing and pointing at cars and shit, then, yeah, I'm terrorizing. There you go. If it's slung over my back and I'm not standing on a corner waving at people and crap, I'm 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 just walking down the road going about my business, well then you know that that's just a person that's been conditioned. I saw a gun call the police. And that is in large part part of the problem that we've conditioned people. We've had cases here, and fortunately most police departments in Texas have have a brain on things like this where a plumber or a carpet layer or something will go into a house to do work. And they'll happen to like open a closet door or something, see a gun laying up against the wall. And they'll call the police and go, this guy's guns. Mm-hmm. And they'll go, well, how do you know that? Well, I was putting you know, carpet on the stairs, and I saw a gun in his house. Did he, point, <laughs> did he point it at you? No. Did he shoot somebody with it? No. Well, what did he do with it? Well, he didn't do anything with it. It was leaning up against the wall in his closet. Okay, don't call us. Right. And, but but that that mentality that if you see a gun, tell somebody has been and I believe purposefully by one side of the aisle pounded into people's brains that a gun equals bad. And <laughs> I think the reason these activists are doing what they're doing is to say it doesn't work that way. The other side, I think some of these activists are going to cause more harm than good. They do it in, you know, if, if you're walking, I know that it's not illegal. I get this. But if you're walking around in, you know, a shopping boutique center with an AK on your back in front of a bunch of Marthas on, on Saturday afternoon, you know full well what you're doing. And there's yeah, no right. real reason for you to do that other than to try to make a point. And what happens is when there's no way to arrest people for doing this. And it, it starts to take up the time of the police department. Because you get a call, there's a guy with a gun, you got to go at least check it out. What happens is local ordinances get issued against open carry in certain like public spaces and stuff like that. The problem then becomes, now there's an ordinance. You are obligated on some degree to enforce an ordinance if you are aware of it and if you be, be being violated. So then the ordinance has to be crafted very carefully so that the original intent isn't disrupted. So I go to Academy, right? I buy mm-hmm. a shotgun. They walk me to the door with it, hand it to me, 
and I head to my car with it. So Martha goes, oh, guys, 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 calls the cops. Happens to be, because in normal situations, by the time you get there, where is he? I don't know. I got his car left. Okay, get there. gone. Right. <laughs> but you happen to be in the parking lot. You get the call. Boop. There, there I am standing there with a shotgun like, what the hell? Technically, now I'm open carrying. Right, mm-hmm. and that's and, and the way the Arlington wrote their ordinance, it protect specifically protected against stuff like that. But that was like that's because they know they have to do that. They don't have to have to be careful about these things. So I think these activists, I've seen guys do it in a really valid way. Guys walking down the street from one house to another, and he's taking his gun with him. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Going into a mall, you know, well, usually don't go into malls because there's you know, signage or whatever, but a mall parking lot and stuff like that, walking around 20 guys with guns, that kind of thing, I think it provokes a response. And that's what it's supposed to do. And I I, I, I cheer the intent, but I decry the result. I don't think the result is a positive one. I think you're, you're probably right with that. It certainly gets a reaction, um, but knowing... I, and I have to straddle the line. My my wife's family comes from a very uh, liberal, you know, afraid of gun background. Um, so I kind of I kind of know how these people think. And what I mean by that is people on the other side of the aisle, that you know, the gun grabber, you know, tight mind. Uh, it provokes the wrong reaction. I would hope, you know, my goal as far as uh, well as far as firearm rights go, I'd hope to change minds and to bring people over from that other side uh, onto my side. But I think while the intent might be good for the for open carry, it, it actually further entrenches um, the gun grabber fear of guns. And if anything, it, it, it actually provokes law enforcement, at least the ones I know. Um, now, I would love to see I'd love to see more open carry uh, activism in North Carolina. I don't think we have enough. I don't think this has been something that's hit the the local news. Uh, now, are outlets. you a true open carry state, or are you like a Texas open carry state? Here's what I mean by it. in Texas, if I want to carry a handgun, I have to have a concealed handgun license, and I have to carry concealed. We are open carry for long guns, and I think that's about as bad as it gets because I think that when people see a person carrying open carry with a handgun on their side, holstered um, because they're exercising their right to carry. It may cause a few calls by some Marthas, but it's much easier for law enforcement to go, totally legal, ma'am, sorry, can't help you. Man's got his gun in his holster. When you see a person with you know, what the media calls an assault rifle on their back, <laughs> On a 45 degree angle, muzzle pointed to the ground, it, it it it's like that's not a natural place where one would usually choose to carry a long gun. There's a long before there were any laws about this, people made handguns because they were more practical for carrying. It was more practical right? for carrying, yeah. Right. So, so to me, like. Open carry with a handgun on on your daily activities is different than open carry with an AK. I understand the legal technicalities, but I also understand the psychology of dealing with people. When I was in high school, uh, I remember in shop class one time, uh, I had a kid that was giving me a little bit of grief in class, 
And, uh, you know, I, I was walking around with a stick in my hand, and the chop teacher knew some stuff was going on, and he's like, you're provoking him. I'm like, I ain't provoking nothing, but I'm fixing to pop him. And he goes, if you're walking up to somebody with a stick in your hand like a club, you're provoking them. So there's a little bit of that, I think, there. So do you guys have full open carry, or is it just for long guns? No, we have full open carry. And okay. interestingly enough, uh, the concealed carry is where you have to have a um, a concealed carry license in order to, to carry concealed, as far as handguns sure. are concerned. Um but no, you can carry in North Carolina. You can carry open either a, a handgun or or a long gun. Uh, I agree with you. The psychology of carrying a uh, a pistol or a revolver is it's a lot less scary to the Marthas and the Bettys and the you know the people that are going to call the police for the you know for the um, I don't know the kid riding a skateboard down the street. It's the same group of people that are going to call. And I wish I could say our dispatchers have the um, flexibility to to tell some of these people off. If there's there's some BS calls that you know the BS when the dispatcher gives it to you. Um, yeah. But at least here, I know the obligation is that we're going to be responding to to any call, whether it's a legitimate one or not. Um, I think it's I mean Texas, important. if it's a nine one one call, someone's going to check it out, no matter what. If if I pick You're the phone right. up, dial nine one one. The dispatcher answers, and I hang up. The There's going to be an officer that goes to that location if it's a cell yeah. phone. If it's a yeah, my brother-in-law's a cop. on your door. Yeah, my brother-in-law's a cop, and when his kids were little and they were getting old and know how to work things, they were teaching him. You know, if anything bad ever happens, dial nine one one, and they were teaching him how to do it and all with a play phone. Well. You know, you you get a six year old, and she's like, "Huh, nine one one." So she calls nine one 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 day, and Mark sees her with the phone and grabs and hears nine one one. What's your emergency? He goes, mm-hmm. "It picked the phone up and dialed it, but I'll see you when you get here." Because he knew, even with him answering the phone and explaining what happened, they were coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is a good thing because I would tell someone if you're in your home and you're afraid to make a sound, but you can get a phone off the hook. And, and just dial nine one one. At least you're you're creating a response. So I I actually like that policy. Other than it can send you places where you know you don't need to be going. Uh, well, the other side of it is I could be sitting there going, yeah, um, yeah. There's nothing wrong here. Every, everything's good. Well, I've got my gun leveled at the head of the the homeowner, who who mm-hmm. just managed to dial nine one one when I caught him. So I, I can see why we have that. Mm-hmm. It, it's a good policy. In a tactical situation, I'd add the caveat, some places, if officers responding routine traffic where they're not going lights and sirens to a to a 911 hang-up or a 911 open line, uh, there's places in North Carolina, there's places in Montana and um, you know some of the even more rural states where you're looking at a, an hour, hour and a half response time for an yep. officer. you got to get somebody yep. out of bed to get, uh, you know, the next town over to, to check on the house. Well, even if he's on duty, he could be just just geographically incapable of being there in less than an hour. I mean, they have one yeah, guy covering right. half the county, you know. Mm-hmm. And in, and in those places, it isn't you know, thirty miles is relative to how long it takes to traverse. Is it on mm-hmm. a highway that I can do sixty five on, on on a normal day, and I can do a hundred with lights and sirens, or is it? You know, fifteen fifteen turn uh, per mile back roads. Yeah, down a it, big path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, music. 
Yeah. <laughs> so but let's let's keep kind of moving forward with this. Um, there's a lot of recording of police right now. Are there are there laws against or for the ability to do this? And what are kind of the pros and cons of recording the police? Well, I'll, I'll tackle it from our perspective, from our state perspective, and then I'll expand out nationwide. North Carolina does not have a recording police statute per se. There's there's wiretapping statutes on the books that regard that uh, are in reference to recording private conversations. Um, but what um, I've seen used uh, by fellow officers. Uh, no one I know personally, but just in the news and researching, um, the resist, delay, obstruct statute seems to be the one that's used for a police citizen encounter involving a, a recording device. Other states, uh, especially up the Northeast Corridor, um, seen a lot of charging based on wiretapping statutes that are, the intent seems to be more for phone lines. An officer charges based on wiretapping would kind of insinuate that there was a wire somewhere. You would think. Uh, I mean, right. you look at the you look at the statute. And it's it's a 1980s statute that hasn't. You know, if if it was meant for 2014, you'd think the legislature would have done something with it to make it yeah. up to date. Um, but as far as here, what I've seen, our, our resist delay obstruct statute. Um, it is kind of a catch-all, and it, it, it's. It, I pride myself on using that statute as minimally as possible. I think I've charged it maybe a handful of times in my law enforcement career. Um, it, it's a catch-all. It becomes overused, but it, it that's what's used for recording police. And I would say the only time I would use it as far as someone recording police is when there's other circumstances taking place. If you are actively fighting with somebody on the ground and you've got a stupid bystander that comes up and is physically getting in your face with a camcorder or standing over you or preventing you from putting handcuffs on an actively resisting suspect, I can see charging the person with the camcorder as well as as the original suspect. Well, if here's got, my, my my assertion about that. At that point, I don't feel the camera's relevant. You're, right. that, man, that's the point. It's not about the camera at that point. Yeah. It's about the person interfering. Uh, it would be the same with somebody with a camcorder walking into a crime scene. It's not about, and I guess in that case it is, about the camcorder, but it's about the principle of the crime scene not being secure. Um, and by them having the camcorder, it exacerbates it. If you've got a dead body uh, that's being extricated from a car with the interstate collision, and you've got a, a rubbernecker with a, with a uh, cell phone out the window recording the dead body and the EMS workers, and they rear-end the person in front of them, it's about the behavior and the bad driving habits. That's that reckless driving, collision. right? That's reckless driving. That again, that, that the it's, camera. It's not the recording. Yeah. Yeah. So I would address it more from you know, what what are the totality of the circumstances? What else is going on? It's not the camcorder in and of itself. It's the other circumstances that might. If, if that's the only time I can see 
reporting police being something of an issue. And again, it's not about the police being reported. (laughs) If I was on a jury where this case was being made, for me to, to, to say that the individual was guilty, I would have to have the same decision if the person didn't have a camera. So if you're trying to deal with somebody and I walk up with my iPhone and I get in between you and your suspect and I'm going, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? I don't care if I have a camera or not. If I walked in between you and did that uh, and I had my hand up in your face, I'm obstructing your ability to do your job. I'm interfering with an active investigation and possibly arrest. So that that is a criminal activity. If I'm standing back videoing you out of the way and not causing a problem for anybody, and you simply don't want me to video you, I really don't give a shit that you don't want me to video you. And, and I guess that would be the important thing is if – if I'm going to record a police interaction, which you know, I, when I'm off, I'm off. I'm probably not going to be out videotaping my colleagues. But if I were to do that or if I were to give advice to somebody that were, I'd say be respectful. Um, give a little bit of distance. Be in a position where the officer can observe you, not because uh, not because I'm paranoid, but because I don't want you having the camcorder and that being a distraction device to give you an opportunity to stab me in the back because sure. I've let my guard down. Yeah. Be, in a, be in a place where you're legally allowed to be, record the interaction and be respectful. Yeah. I don't have a problem. Now, I know there's officers out there that do, um, but that, that's about the best I can do. Oh, I shit. think that's what I mean, the court is my, my response to them is tough shit. You're doing a public job, being paid for, for public funds, in a public space, and you have no expectation of privacy under those circumstances. Yeah, Just like, you know, if, if I'm sitting in my house, and, and I'm talking to a buddy, and we're talking about doing a dope deal together, and you want to record that, and, and more importantly, I guess, hopefully I didn't lose you right there, I just knocked the modem over. But no, um, Oh, good. So, and, 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 and you record that, and that's your evidence. You need a warrant for that. Uh, at least you used to, Mr. NSA guys, whatever, <laughs> that are listening to this. But but in, in, in still in, in most police situations where you're talking about, you know, state or local uh, authority, if you want to use that in a court of law, you need a warrant for the, the wiretapping, if you want to call it, or bugging my home or the surveillance. If I'm sitting on a park bench in a public park and me and a buddy are talking about doing a dope deal, and you happen mm-hmm. to have somebody standing by with a recording device recording me in a public park, it's fully admissible because I have no expectation of privacy there. And all mm-hmm. I'm saying to law enforcement officers is you get the same standard. In fact, as I say often, I think you should actually have a higher standard of expectation because uh, now you're also not only are you in a public space, you're on duty and I'm paying for it. So You're, you're absolutely right. You're I have every right, right to record you whether you like it or not. And if you don't like it, don't do nothing stupid. Now, I think there's a lot of these guys that do all this videotaping and all, the cop, cop block guys and all, they have a really good understand, funny, fundamental understanding of the law. And they mm-hmm. would give the following advice if you're being questioned about something, that, anything. Keep your mouth shut. I mm-hmm. think if they would take their own advice and when they're videoing, don't say anything to the police, they'd have a lot less trouble as well because a lot of times these guys – are provoking officers while they're doing the taping. And to me, your videoing is all you need to worry about doing because whatever happens, happens. You taunting that officer 
does begin to interfere because if I'm dealing with somebody I think is dangerous and I've got you back here mouthing me off, that one second that I turn around gives the guy I'm dealing with an opportunity to harm me. So, so now, now right. we've got a problem with you. So if these guys that are well-versed and don't talk to the police would follow their own advice on video on the police, they, but I've seen total abusive cops, too, with it, too, where put that camera away, there's no the guys across the street, and they yeah. walk across the street to engage the citizen. And to me, that cop, again, needs to be washing dishes at a Denny's or something. Yeah, that's that's the one that's the one side of it where you know the 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 guys on the other side of the street being respectful. You know, I think it is important to point out. You know, unfortunately, Hotlock has a bad name in law enforcement because there seems to be an ulterior motive. And, you know, when the commentary, you, you pull up the YouTube video and it says, uh, "Pig," uh, let's see, yeah. let's come up with something really funny. Pig revenue hunter uh, screws over Joe Citizen. You know, and, and you can already tell from the title of the video without the the humorous narration. I I laugh when I when I hear some of the some of the diatribe you know from the person recording. Um, but you know, I I know the ulterior motive is there with a lot of people, and I try to be respectful when I see the phones come out. Uh, I try to be respectful, but I know that oftentimes that's the hostile. Uh, person that's wanting to get something in on me as well. So it's it's not, you know, I as an officer, I don't mind being recorded, but at the same time, I, I I'm not naive about it. I know there's a, you know, there's a segment that wants to wants to see me mess up and wants to get it on YouTube. Um, so I'm aware of that as well. See, if I see an interaction involving police officers, it looks like anything other than a typical interaction. I'm pulling my phone out, and I'm recording it, and I don't have that agenda unless you're an asshole. Right. Oh, and I know, no. you know, that's the difference between you, you know, I would say the other side of the coin, you know, that you've got the people that want to screw over law enforcement and, and catch somebody screwing up, but you've also got the, the curious people that are going to record an interaction while you've got, you know, I think Dallas had the one recently where yep. you had a car burning up. Um, There's people standing around the screaming, burning victim of a of a car wreck as a off-duty Dallas officer was extricating the person from the car. I think it was Dallas. I know it was Texas yeah. somewhere. You know, and that, again, that's not about recording the police, or in that case, recording the car wreck. It's about the lack of humanity that you've got somebody oh, yeah. dying, and yeah. you've got people recording it. Well, that's so, part of a whole different problem. That's part of our obsession with people like the freaking Kardashians. That's part of... There was a, another film from Dallas recently where a guy was in front of a strip mall. Another guy shot him and ran away. And in the security camera footage, you see people walk right by mm -hmm. as the guy shot, never turn their head and keep on walking. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to the point of not just like, I'm afraid I could get shot, but totally don't give a shit. And, it, and that's a cultural problem with it's people. It's a cultural thing. You're absolutely right. You know, I could see if I, if I saw a guy getting shot and I wasn't armed and the guy was close enough to shoot me too, I'd probably take cover, assess the situation. But once the guy flees, I'm going to try to help the guy that just got freaking shot. Well, At least you, I'm going to pick up my phone and call 911. You'd run um, the other way. You wouldn't have like your head Get in their car and drive. You know, like the guy fell in the parking lot and the one guy had to, like, go around him. You know, and at least he was decent enough to not run over. And you're just thinking there's something sick with these people that, that just don't. Not my problem. He didn't shoot me. 
he probably deserved to get shot. I don't know. You know, I mean, that was the attitude, and it was it was sad to see. So I, I get what you're saying there. Um, now, another thing that comes up a lot that we talk about is law enforcement and the sovereign citizen. And I think there's some sovereign citizen-minded individuals out there. There's some really messed up, violent dudes. I think the majority of them are people that are trying to say we have certain inalienable rights as individuals, and they have a problem with the state even saying they don't have these rights. And all of these laws, many of the laws I feel we have today, I believe, are unconstitutional. And, I mean, what is your perspective? My perspective is... There is an inherently dangerous segment of that society. Most aren't. And I think you guys are scared more because of what people like the Southern Poverty Law Center have done than what's actually happened. I, I knew the name, I knew that name was going to come up. And I remember your response. Should. Uh, there was a caller probably, uh, this would have been right when I started listening. I think uh, a year and a half ago, maybe, uh, okay. two years ago. And it was a law enforcement officer called in and asked you for your opinion on it. And you basically broke it down into different levels. And I really liked your response, and I agree with it, that you've got the off-the-wall, crazy, uh, extreme people that don't want to pay taxes, that don't want, that want to drive around with no license plates no on license, the cars yeah. and, no, and no driver's licenses, no insurance, um, the right to travel folks that, that – just go off the deep end crazy and print their own license plate. Um, people like Timothy McVeigh have been labeled sovereign citizens, and as a result, the entire uh, sovereign man, I'd even say survivalist um, prepper community has been labeled in kind of a bad light because of oh, the Timothy McVeigh's and other people like that that are off the deep end crazy. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center jumped on the bandwagon uh, when uh, East Memphis um, had two officers that were killed. Um, I forget the, even the name of the guy that drove around the country with his son uh, giving presentations basically on how to avoid taxes. Um, he gets oh, stopped yeah. by a... Yeah, Peter He gets stopped by an East Memphis officer at a routine traffic stop. And in the course of talking with the father and son duo, uh, son jumps out of the car with the, the dad's already out talking with the officers. Son jumps out of the passenger side with a rifle. Uh, two, the two East Memphis officers are shot. Okay, hold on. Killed. Before you go further, I need to make sure I fix what I just, that's not what I was, I was wrong with the name I gave. I gave Schiff, as in Peter Schiff, because his dad's in jail for the whole tax thing. But no, that's not the Schiffs. Okay, keep okay, going. Different name. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I'm just, I was but, just wrong there. Go ahead. But anyways, the father-son duo drives away, ends up in a shootout in a parking lot in a in a shopping center with, you know, God knows how many officers and other agencies involved. Turns out one of the officers that was shot on the original traffic stop was the son of the East Memphis Police Department. And as a result, the Southern Poverty Law Center and that police chief become the face of what law enforcement perceives as sovereign citizens. And, and like you mentioned in your response, I think it's important to, you know, we, we, we use labels, and this is society in general, we use labels to just paint with a broad brush. You have degrees, and there's people that are off the wall deep and crazy that are, that are dangerous that, you know, that I recognize as a law enforcement officer. 
but I think you've got, you know, you've got yourself, you've got me, you've got other people that are just liberty minded, that are cognizant of living within the system and the rules that we have. And I'm going to respect the laws that are on the books, but at the same time, I'm going to be aware of my rights and my uh, liberties that I have that are guaranteed by the Constitution and by the Bill of Rights. I'm also aware of things like the tax code and how having a good accountant can allow you to legally deduct taxes under certain provisions in certain ways where you get a maximum deduction. It's not cheating taxes. You're playing within the rules. But at the same time, you're, you're being aware of it. And I don't consider myself a sovereign citizen in that regard. I consider myself uh, shrewd in knowing how to play within the rules of the system. Well, I think uh, that there's a big line there between what, what you would call belief and action. In other words, yeah. do I personally believe the income tax on individual income is unconstitutional? Yes. Do I believe there's actually Supreme Court decisions that support that contention? Yes. Do I pay my income tax? Uh-huh. Yes. Right? <laughs> because I'm in a situation where, though I believe it's unconstitutional, I also believe that in the current environment, the authority to prosecute me successfully for doing so exists. And my desire not to pay income tax uh, is not as strong as my desire to not be incarcerated or have Stay my out life. Of the 10 cell. <laughs> Correct. And I don't feel so strongly about it that I'm willing to take the life of another individual over it. If we ever get to a point where, without constitutional amendment, they issue a wholesale ban on guns and say we're, we're seizing everybody's guns, we're in a different world now. Uh, mm -hmm. My prior oath as a member of the United States military is to the Constitution, not to the United States military, right? Mm -hmm. So at that point now, without – now, there's a lot of stuff I think is unconstitutional with gun control right now, but it's not to the point where it's so clear that I get the freedom as an individual to make that decision for myself. Now, the outright – no citizen shall own a weapon, period, forevermore, and they start Gestapo seizing weapons, you know, we're into a very dark place I hope I never see in my lifetime. But and that's where group I have keepers jumps in. Yeah, and I have, a, I have a line that shall not be crossed, but that line has to be, that line has to be judiciously considered with modern-day reality and with mm -hmm. the value of other human lives. And mm -hmm. the truth is, if we don't like a lot of these laws, regardless of how bought off the, the Congress and the Senate are, at least at the local and state levels, we have a process within our republic to contest those laws both in court and through re repealing legislation or passing new replacement legislation. And as long as we have that process, as long as that process is unencumbered, then people like myself, who I'm a founding member of Oath Keepers, our oath is to that constitution and to that system, and it's not my duty to protect the people from themselves. It is my duty to protect the people from the government when the government throws away the process. So as mm -hmm. long as the people could fix it and choose not to, my oath is actually to, 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 to stand by and stand, stand watch. The minute that we go to the point where 
were yanking people out of their homes because they wrote uh, an article that the dictator didn't like. Well, well, now we have a totally different scenario. And my hope is that most of the law enforcement community would stand on the right side of that line. My fear is many would not. And, well, and, and that's a legitimate fear. We've mentioned Oath Keepers. Uh, that's, you know, you're a big scary person now because you're part of it. You, you know, yeah. law enforcement community, Southern Poverty Law Center uh, views Oath Keepers as one of those scary groups. Well, they're right um, in there. They're sovereign citizens, right? They mm-hmm. just merge mm-hmm. them into a just, big let's put everybody together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's crazy how we're going to group everybody together and just paint with the broad brush. Anybody that, you know, that is different or views uh, limits on government as, um, you know, as constitutional. Yeah. I mean, my brother-in-law said, well, those guys are bad. I'm like, well, how do you know that? Because you got a, a memo. They told you they were bad, right? You know, and I'm like, actually, you should be an oath keeper. He's like, well, why? I'm like, well, all being an oath keeper is, is there's 10 parts of your oath uh, for your service that you say you won't violate. And every single one of them are things that you should never let happen anyway. And he said, well, you know, then 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 they would never do that anyway. And I said, well, then why wouldn't you reaffirm your oath publicly? <laughs> I and and, and we, then we had a conversation about the upcoming football season because we didn't want to go there, right? I mean, we didn't want to like, go there. Right. So, you know, well, they would never cordon off the cities and turn them into concentration camps. Well, then, great. You should have no problem saying you wouldn't do it if you were ordered to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, 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 I struggle with how easily the law enforcement community has been led to believe that the Oath Keepers are a danger. When the entire point of Oath Keepers is for prior and active serving military and law enforcement. It is a law enforcement and military community of people mm-hmm. that actually say, when I, when I swore an oath, it actually freaking meant something. And again, the oath we take is not to uh, an individual. It is not to serve the the government it is to uphold and defend the constitution of our nation and our our state if 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 that's part of our service and and there's a reason that that was always part of military service that it was to be clearly understood that your duty is first to the republic not to anybody that's running it mm-hmm. and i don't know i mean i don't know how much training modern law enforcement gets in that regard well I don't know if you're going to like this, but I think the answer is a lot of the training comes from groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center. Sure. You know, and that's one of the reasons that that's such a scary group. Um, I, I'm not finding it on the Oath Keeper website now. The one issue I would take uh, with the keepers, I seem to recall there was a 10-point um, oath or pledge that you make at one point. Um, yep. You mentioned something about uh, searches and seizures. I know we talked about that earlier. Uh, I seem to recall that one of them was searches without probable cause, being one of the the pledges that law enforcement is supposed to make. Um, and I see that, you know, when we talk about vehicles, I see that being problematic, uh, given that current law is written as such that you don't have to have a search warrant for cars. Uh, I know that seems like a minute point, you know, in some ways it is, but... Um, you know, and it seems like that would be one 
one small thing I'd have an issue with, even though the mes- message and uh, certainly the attitude portrayed by Stuart Rhodes are, you know, are phenomenal. Um, well, let me know. read that actual. Let me read that actual um, part of the oath to you. We will not obey any Please order. Do. I, I couldn't find yeah. it. We will. It's the second one. It's we will not obey any order to conduct warrantless searches of the American people, their homes, vehicles, papers, and effects such as warrantless house-to-house searches for weapons and persons. I, I don't think that applies to you've stopped a person on the, the street and you have reasonable suspicion. I think what that applies to is go out, stop, and search every vehicle. You I don't mean, want the Boston-type searches for the, the Boston shoot, the Boston yeah. bombers. Okay. That was a perfect okay. example of something that, it, that an oath-keeping officer should have said, I'm not just going into every house here with, with, without the consent of the individual. That might be that might be something I need to research further. And I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the message and the the attitude are certainly spot on. I know as a profession, um, whether it's intentional or whether it's just the, the you know some of it probably is, and some of it's probably fear of administration. But we as officers do not do a good enough job standing up, whether as for political things, I think the fear is that if I, I, I know I'm speaking to you using a pseudonym, you know, if I was to use my real name, uh, the department would likely have repercussions for me for speaking to you, you know, speaking to any media right. outlet for that matter. I know it's against policy, um, you know, and we as officers, when it comes to something like this, this is definitely something you keep in the in the background, you don't advertise, yes, I'm an oath keeper, but at the same time, you would be good to be able to say to fellow officers, hey, have you heard about this group? You know, this looks like something we might want to get behind. You have those conversations in the squad car and get other officers behind it, and those conversations don't happen for fear of administration or, you know, fear of uh, retaliation for whatever reason. I am seeing some changes to that, though, with law enforcement, where I think the message is getting through, and more in the more rural areas and sheriff's deputies and things like that. One one mm-hmm. day I got pulled over in my truck in Arkansas, and it was a guy, he's sitting in a place where he's going to pull people over. I mean, if you come over this hill, <laughs> you're going to go over, and it's like a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit, and I think I was cooking along about 48, and he pulled me over, and he was real cool and all, and... He ran my my uh, my license and everything, and he had some kind of problem, but it was the dispatcher was an idiot that he called back to to run it and put the number in wrong. And we were actually talking about, he's like, how do it's I get rid unusual. of him? He was like, how do I get rid of him? You know, how do we, this, everybody in the apartment agrees this guy sucks. How do we get him out of here? And I was exp- We're laughing, and I'm telling him, like, the Dilbert principle, give him great reviews so somebody else will steal him. And uh, so finally... Everything's cool. He's just going to let me off with a warning. He has to my license back. says, be careful. This is a windy road. You could hit somebody with that big truck. And he's heading back to his car. He gets like halfway to his car, and he stops. And he mm-hmm. turns 180 degrees like a pirouette, and he comes walking back to the truck. And I'm like, oh, damn it. What the hell? You know, and like, <laughs> what did I do to set him off? You know, this was all cool. He comes back, and he just goes, I always have, and I always will, and turn around, walk back to his car, and left. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, referring what to the, the hell players? was that? For a second, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. And then I realized I had an Oath Keeper sticker on the window. He saw it on the back of your truck. And that was basically his way of saying, yeah, I'm with you on this. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I assume this guy's probably, and probably not, 
with a T-shirt in the locker room, you know, at, at work, but he's probably a member officer. And we have an awful lot of active law enforcement that are part of Oath Keepers. We have a ton of prior service. Most mm-hmm. of the members are prior service military. They're not active military. Well, and like, and that's like, a danger. That's a danger from a different perspective. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. It is after service and you get back here and the programming starts to wear off that you go through in the military and it's very much a programming. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, wait a minute. You don't necessarily go, I did a bunch of bad things. What you realize is, I probably would have done just about anything they'd asked me to do. Mm-hmm. And yet you start to assess that, and then you realize, and then a lot of soldiers, the first time they ever understand their oath is about that moment that they go back and go, let me, let me, because you have kind of this life review that you go through as you, as you decompress from military service. It's, I think a lot of cops think, well, like it's a lot like what we do, and it's, it's really so much different. No, it's so different. Uh, you give up so much more of your freedom. You give up so many more of your rights. The the fact that you're deployable to anywhere in the world to combat. I mean, it's it's just a totally different world. So it takes a lot longer for I guess a guy that retires from the Marine Corps to 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 decouple than it does from a cop that you know does his thirty and gets his pension and buys a boat. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's still a decoupling, but you live like a civilian whenever you're not on work. A soldier lives like a soldier twenty four seven unless you're on leave. And then you're mm-hmm. still assaulted, right? So as you come as you start to separate from that, you go through this review process and then you start to say, Well, what am I, what was it really about? What did it really mean? And you start to question whether was it worth it. And then you start to actually examine it from some level of academic standpoint, and you start saying to yourself, Well, when I took that oath, exactly what were those words and what did those words mean? And mm-hmm. then you realize, you know what, that is pretty much what I did. But then you start thinking, are there people there that wouldn't? And were there times where you didn't know everything that was going on that you may have obeyed an order that would have been illegal or immoral, and you'd have done it because you wouldn't have known any better? And do you think anybody in your command would have ever given that order? You start answering that, well, huh, yeah. And when when that person that's kind of matured in that way sees something like Oath Keepers, they see the need for it, where the serving soldier can be in deep shit just for being part of it, honestly. Um mm-hmm. It was part of why, when when Stewart put Oath Keepers together, they said we will not sanction any militia unless it's 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 founded by government. So a, a militia that's seen as legitimate by Oath Keepers has to be like a county militia chartered underneath the, the county itself, and mm-hmm. a lot of the militia folks have a big issue with that. And and the response from Oath Keepers is. That's the only way that basically a serving soldier isn't in complete deep shit for being associated with us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, like you mentioned with rural areas versus you know versus the cities, and that's the great that's the great dichotomy right now. I think even more than like Republican and Democrat, that's going to be sure. something both both nationwide and in law enforcement. Your rural areas are much more friendly to something like Oath Keepers because they understand it. The Oath Keeper person um, is an officer or is somebody that is a neighbor of an officer, whereas your big cities, you know, you don't, officers don't know each other. I I know uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg. There's no way 
you know, that's probably a thousand person department. There's no way, you know, the person in one district can know who they're working with on the same shift with the persons across town in the other district. I know uh, the deputies that work in my county extremely well. You know, and if there was somebody that was um, a serving veteran that, that got out uh, and had the preparedness mindset and was an oath keeper, I might not know that they're an oath keeper per se, but I'm going to know them a whole lot better, you know, in my community. I, that's why I love living in a small town. Um, you, you just know people better, and you know that about them. Um, you also know that even if they don't have the association with the with the organization per se, you know by their actions that they're more of a liberty-minded individual than you know about your neighbor in a subdivision, you know, and pick your big city that the neighbors don't even talk to each other, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, if if, if you know I'm an Oath Keeper and, and you know me, you're like, well, Oath Keepers can't be that bad. He's not that bad. If you mm-hmm. don't know me, all you know is what you got in your last memo from the Southern Poverty Law Center about Oath Keepers. Oh, that, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's a Ron Paul voter, and he's an Oath Keeper member. He must be a sovereign citizen, too. Let's arrest him. Well, and that's that's what's taught, and, you know, in the sovereign citizen classes that I've been to with law enforcement, you know, you look for these indicators, quote-unquote, uh, the Ron Paul stickers, the uh, Tea Party stickers. Uh, let's add, I mean, I'm trying to think of some of the ones that are, it's certainly not the Obama 2000. Uh, Obama carry stickers with the flag, that, that's certainly not yeah. on the list. You know, it tends to be your more conservative things that uh, you, we start looking at some of these things. It's half, it's half of these, half the pickup trucks in, you know, in, in Boonville are going to have uh, NRA stickers and, and Mossy Oak logo across the top. You know, yeah. but those are indicators of sovereign citizen behavior, supposedly. And some of it, some of it is. I mean, there's there's the off the wall, deep end crazy people. But you're probably going to know they're off the wall, deep end crazy when you start talking to them. Well, cool, man. This has been a great interview. I I, I just looked and I hadn't realized how long it's gone. An hour and forty five minutes. So I think we'll uh, <laughs> I think we'll wrap up there. And I think it's given people a lot of a lot of understanding about both sides of the issue. I mean, I know I can seem really really tough on law enforcement at times, but again, that's because I actually think the cops that do their job in a shitty manner damage so much the majority that do their job well. Can, and, I, uh, can I add a plug for, uh, sure. not for my website, but um, I'm drawing great inspiration and instead of staying cynical like I see a lot of law enforcement officers, I've, I've stayed pretty optimistic and have a pretty good outlook on law enforcement um, in on society in general because of uh, one man. His name's David Oliver. Uh, he's a police chief in a small town in Ohio called Brimfield. It's outside of Akron and uh, here Kent State where the Kent State massacre happened. Uh, but he's got a Facebook page. It's called Brimfield Police. Uh, I don't I don't have the page pulled up on the computer, but if you type in Brimfield Police on Facebook, it's going to be the first result. And he is the most, uh, dare say, uh, funny yet completely honest, candid police chief I've ever seen as far as administrators go. He'll put uh, commendations for officers up in the same breath. If the department does something wrong, he's going to be the first one 
to say, look, we messed up in this case. Um, and it is a breadth of fresh air uh, to be able to see um, administration having a Facebook page interacting with their citizens in that way. Um, I believe, I could have this wrong, they've got more uh, likes on Facebook than any department aside from New York City. And it's a town of, I don't even know the population, it's less than 10,000. Um, and they've got more likes, you know, from people around the world um, because, in my opinion, people want to see that from law enforcement. They don't want the, you know, can you identify this suspect? And that's yeah. it. Yeah, they want yeah. they want the interaction like the fireside chats that FDR is known for. Um, We've got a guy in Dallas that that was probably one of the more screwed up departments in in the country on some levels before this guy took over. I mean, we had a police chief there whose son was killed drilling drugs and ordered officers to provide an escort for, I mean, <laughs> there was some real screwed up shit there. And mm-hmm. and this guy, David Brown, who is the Dallas police chief now is using social media much the same way. And he'll post on Twitter, accommodation to an officer that did something wonderful. And he'll tweet out that some guy just got his ass canned um, mm-hmm. the next day. And, I that guy is doing a great job in a very difficult place to be right now because there's a lot of people because of past things that have very little confidence in Dallas PD to be equitable and fair. And mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the thing about this, and I know somebody will try to make this racist, it's not. The man's black, and it's probably good that he is because mm-hmm. I, I think that for the situation that they're in, and the particular demographic that they've particularly been abusive to, that's necessary to earn trust back from the community. I hate somebody being hired in any way because of their color, but I, I, I don't think that's why he was hired, but I think it works because of that. And I think that, that when people start to see the leadership of these departments say, you know what, that's not cool, that's okay, not okay, this guy's done you know, and he's also done it, which may be a little bit risky with guys that like aren't done yet, but they're mm-hmm. probably done, right? You know, uh, he's published like full on reprimands, stuff like that. But that tells the public, hey, you know what? If one of our officers doesn't conduct themselves properly, there is accountability. And I think that's the only way to gain public trust back because a lot of it has been lost. And a lot of the things that a lot, see, here's what's really happened, and, and we do need to wrap, but. A lot of the members of the public today, such as myself, older folks, 40s, 50s, we trusted police our whole lives. We mm-hmm. heard the crazy pot-smoking cousin, yo, man, the cops are all pigs, and they're doing this, and they're abusing that, and they're killing people in the streets. And, and we, it never happened to us. We never saw it happen. We thought those guys were all full of shit. All of a sudden, everybody's got a smartphone, and we started to see, hey, those crazy guys aren't completely crazy and a lot of trust has been lost, and I think the only way to get it back is with one officers policing themselves, and two leadership has to communicate with the public and say, "We're not tolerating this. We're not tolerating this amongst our officers." And flat out admit, yes, this kind of shit has gone on in the past. Because if you say it hasn't, then people mm-hmm. just go, "Well, you're a liar." They don't believe you at all. But they shouldn't, because it's like, mm-hmm. "Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Oh, there's a cop turning a dog on a lady with a baby." 
and try it didn't on happen. Well, there's a video of it happening right there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a video of a cop with a giant, you know, Walmart sized can of pepper spray spraying 18 people in a line peaceably protesting in the face with it. Walking down the line, painting all 18 faces with it. You can't say it didn't happen because there it is. There but it when, is. when leadership stands up and goes, yes, that happened. No, it shouldn't happen. This is the action that's been taken. This is what we're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. All of a sudden, the public starts to say, okay, keep doing that stuff, and you'll earn our trust back. But I do feel on some levels the trust has, at this point has to be re-earned, not just given. You're absolutely right. The badge does not equal respect. It's a sign of public trust, or at least it's supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's something I think everybody in any position of authority needs to learn, that the the position does not gain trust. Trust is earned. Ask a father, and a father will tell you that even with your own children, you earn respect and you earn trust. And and good mm-hmm. leaders understand that. Anyway, man, thank you for the job that you do, and thank you for sticking your neck out at least a little bit and being here with us today. And uh, thanks for taking so much time to be with us today. Again, we're at like an hour and 50 Oh, I've been pleasure all mine. I really appreciate being on the show. All right, folks, and with that, this is uh, Jack Spearco today with uh, Tim O'Brien, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living 